0: You are listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have
1: about him. Good morning. Our scripture this morning the first part is from Genesis chapter 1, verses 28 to 29. And God blessed them. The next reading is from Genesis chapter 2, verses 5 through 15. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, And there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Biliam and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gayan. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it.
0: Well, good morning, everybody. We are in a study in the book of Genesis, if you couldn't tell. And what I want to do today is review where we've been going, where we've been at, and summarize some of the things that we've seen, uh, especially pertaining to what it means to be God's people who work on his behalf and represent him. So my goal today is to get you excited about your job. You may be here and hate your job. You may be here and be in the career that you've been dreaming of or somewhere in between. But my goal today is to get you excited about your work by giving you a theology of vocation, a theology of your work, a theological vision for what you are to do with your day-to-day activity in the world, especially in your place of occupation, so we're going to review and summarize some of the things that we've seen, and then we are going to talk implementation and application for a while. So who's ready for a long sermon? Anyone, in, anyone ready for a big one? All right. Last week was pretty big. Maybe I'll go even longer. I don't know. It, it might get crazy. So let's go ahead and review where we've been, what we've seen so far. Let's talk about work. So back in chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the word created here is bara, which means to create from nothing. God created matter, material, the world from nothing. And then as we move into the seven-day creation narrative, it says that God made. He made the sky, he made the animals, he made the vegetation. And the word for made is asa, which means to fashion or shape. So this means that God, bara, he creates everything out of nothing, and then he assaws everything. He refashions and shapes and brings order to it. And the, the, the end product of God's Barah and Esau creation is a well-ordered home for mankind that is both beautiful and bountiful. And then verse uh, 26 in the same chapter, God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So to be made in God's likeness, remember, means that we are created for relationship with him. Every single human being is built with the capacity and tendency towards the transcendent. We can't help it because each one of us are made after the likeness of God. This word likeness in other ancient texts that were uh, around the same time as Moses is writing this, this same word is used of priests and kings to describe their special status in relationship to the divine, and the shocking thing is Moses uses that for everybody. Everybody has a special status in relationship to God. They're made for him. And then we're also made in the image of God. To be made in God's image means that we're created to represent him as we go out and rule over creation. This word, again, is used in the culture in this time to refer to kings or even statues that would be understood to mediate the presence of the divine. So it's like if you're looking at that king or looking at that statue, it's as if that God was right there. That's how clear and vivid of a representation people in the image of the God were. And now all of us are said to be made in God's image. We represent him. So the full picture of what it means to be human, like inside of you, deep down in your being, you were made to have fellowship with God. And from that rich intimacy with God, move outward, doing all that we do just like he would, like a father and a son. So then we read in Genesis 1, this, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish, the sea, the birds, on and on. God blessed them and said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion. So now that we understand that we move out into the world on God's behalf in relationship with him, what we can see is that we are to have God as a point of reference, right? We have relationship with him, knowledge of him moving out, acting just like he would over creation. So remember back in the first sermon of the series, how did God create the world? What did we notice about God? God, he created the world creatively, right? Where the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water, pondering what he's about to do, what's up his sleeve. There's this anticipation that's occurring before creation just explodes onto the scene. God is creative. We also saw that God is happy because he's a trinity, He didn't create out of deficiency. He didn't create because he's lonely or bored. He created out of this overflow of abundant love that he has within his own Trinity community. We also saw that there's this cadence in creation. Every single passage you read in Genesis chapter one, there's the same rhythm about what God does. And so he's orderly. We also saw that he does it kindly. He does it for our sake, right? Uh, He created a world for who? For his image bearers from people made after his likeness. This world is a gift to us. God created creatively, happily, orderly, and kindly. And so now we, as his image bearers, go out and our activity in the world is to be characterized in the exact same way. We are to exercise dominion creatively, happily, orderly, kindly, for the sake of other people. And so when we dwell with God, and move outward from a place of intimacy with and knowledge of God, here's what happens. We become this living, breathing tether between heaven and earth. As if through our activity and our movement outward, we are invading more of earth with heaven. Remember, Jesus tells us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. And that's what all of us are meant to do. Usher in God's glory into all the earth through our activity. We were meant to invade earth with heaven. So then Adam is put to work. Read with me in uh, Genesis 129. Actually, before I read this, I want you to notice one thing. Uh, Remember, God Barad, God created out of nothing, and then God Asad, he refashioned and reshaped that which he had already made. So now we take what God has Barad, the world, It's harnessed potential, it's raw potential, and we refashion it and we reshape it. We act like God did. So Adam, first, he cultivates the ground. Verse 29, chapter 129. God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. So obviously these plants and these trees with seed and their fruit, they're meant for food, they're meant for Adam's punishment, but the obvious implication that the original readers wouldn't miss is that there's seed in this fruit, and what do you do with seed as you're cultivating the ground? You plant it. Uh, just to confirm this, chapter 2, verse 5 says this, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, so there's no vegetation in the world yet. Why? The Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. There's no man planting seeds and cultivating the ground and tilling the soil. So here's what we should understand from what we see thus far about what Adam is tasked to do. We should understand that the Garden of Eden is a garden sanctuary. It's a place where Adam and Eve would dwell with God, and Adam's task is, "...is to work the ground around the perimeter of the garden and extend its border so that the outside, gardenless, disordered world is brought into order for the good of the world." So Adam takes what God has baraad, seeds, fruit with seeds in it, and he assaws it, he refashions it. He, it, he uses it, he puts it to work." Second, though, we see this also as a part of Adam's work. He is to build this garden sanctuary into a garden temple that's ever-expanding. Verses 11 and 12, I won't read them. They're full of a bunch of difficult language. Good job, Allie, on reading those weird words. It says, though, that there is gold and stone and metals in the surrounding territory. And then immediately after those descriptions of those materials, it says that Adam is put in the garden to work it and keep it. And so, again, the obvious implication that we usually miss because we gloss over it is that Adam is supposed to architect a plan for an ever-expanding garden city by taking the raw material of the world that God has made and engineer it into a new world for the blessing of the world. He takes what God has brought and he assaws it. And that might be a radically new idea to some of you that, God, that Adam is tilling the ground, expanding the borders, and that even more radical that he's building this ever-expanding garden city, garden temple, garden sanctuary. Just to prove that I'm not making this up, this up, if you in your Bibles want to turn to Genesis 4, it'll be on the screen behind me as well. Genesis 4, starting in verse 16, Cain, after he's exiled for sin, it says this. This is what Cain does once he's exiled away from God. It says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Now, where do you think Cain got this idea to build a city? That's, he got that from his daddy. He got that from his father. So Uh, This time though, instead of building a garden city that would expand and bless the world and glorify God, Cain in this instant builds builds a city in his honor for his glory and for the destruction of the world. We'll get there in chapter four. So in summary, what we see is that Adam is put in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That's what Genesis 2.15 says. He does this by cultivating the ground. He does this by constructing a garden temple expanding the boundaries of God's sanctuary deeper into the world. And in so doing, he reenacts what God God has already done. God made a garden for man. Remember in chapter 2, verse 9, you can go there and read it. It says that God made a garden for man that was pleasing to the sight and good for food. So interesting, think about that. God creates a garden that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. That means that it meets emotional needs and physical needs. It's both beautiful and bountiful. It was a blessing emotionally and physically. So the garden, it appealed to our needs and desires. The garden ministered to the inner being and the physical being. And now Adam turns around and does the same thing. He plants gardens all around him and builds a city that's beautiful. So Adam, he's cultivating and constructing. He is rural and urban. He is in the dirt, and he's building a skyline. He is working responsibly and innovatively. His work is organic and technological. He is an artist and a technician. So Adam, through his work, is tapping into the harnessed potential of God's world and using his unique abilities to bring to reality what's in his imagination for the good of the world, and the glory of God. That's what Adams up to. He is tapping into the harness potential of God's world using his unique skills to bring to reality what's in his imagination for the good of the world and the glory of God. One author describes work as the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. See when our unique skill set when our, unique, when our unique capacities intersect with need and makes a contribution to that need, we feel the pleasure of God. It's like we're blossoming. When our creativity, our diligence, our work ethic, our skills intersect with need and meet that need, man, there's nothing like it. And that's exactly, exactly what God's vision for work is from the very beginning. That's exactly what God tasks Adam to do. So see then very clearly that work, okay? Work is not a result of the fall. Work existed before sin ever entered the world. The Bible, and really, truly, uniquely, the Bible alone of all religious texts and documents is so positive about work is so encouraging about work because work, what we do, how we use our bodies, what we bring to reality that's in our imagination, all these things, it's essential to our being. We're made in the image of God after his likeness. We were created to know God, then move out representing him. So see that God is handing off his good world to us. We are collaborators with God. We are co-creators with God. Do you understand that that's your mantle? That that's your calling in life to collaborate with God in his good world? It's a breathtaking reality that this is what each of us are created for. And actually David meditates on this very idea. David meditates on these verses in Psalm chapter eight and it moves him to worship. He can't believe that this is what we're called to, that this is our position in the world. He says, when I look at your heaven's the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. See, we have this privileged position within the created order to go out, bring order through our creativity, do it happily, do it kindly for the sake of others, all in an effort to represent God to the world. So that's our theology of work. That's what Genesis tells us is the human destiny, to know God and then move outward on his behalf, bringing a blessing to the world and glorifying him. And so Let's think about how this actually impacts our life, and this is going to be the rest of our time today. We're going to do a biblical theology of work and see what, how else uh, we fill in the blanks. How else we're supposed to think about this? So we need each one of us need to have a great, great, great appreciation for Genesis and Genesis' vision for work. Here's why: uh, you and I, each one of us, whether you're an engineer, whether you're a pastor, whether you're in the military, or whether you're a stay-at-home mom. Okay, that's a full-time job. Um, No matter what you're doing, you will spend 100,000 hours of your life working. It's a lot of time. And Malcolm Gladwell says that it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert at what you do. And so if we work 100,000 hours in our life and it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert at our career, skill, task, whatever it may be, here's the question. What will we do as experts with the 90,000 hours left after we reach that expert status. It's a lot of time that's in your hands that God's given you to work with. What will you do with it? See, if you don't have a biblically informed, theologically driven vision for your work, then here's what's going to happen. You're going to end up wasting a lot of time and a lot of energy, and you're going to have a lot of regrets. And if we spend all our lives working this much and you don't have a theological vision for your work, if you're not able to connect your faith to your work, then why would anyone care about your faith at all? It would become completely irrelevant because again, 100,000 hours of our life is devoted to work. If your faith has nothing to say about that, then your faith is irrelevant. And so Jesus, he's asked to sum up the entire Old Testament. We read that earlier. And here's how he sums up the entire Old Testament. Love God. God and love others. That is the Garden of Eden, the human destiny, collapsed into just a few words, love God and love others. If you can't connect 100,000 hours of your life to the whole message of the Bible, love God and love others, then you're in trouble. And so we need to have a theological vision for our work. In the most emotionally cluttered time in history, you as a follower of Jesus have the opportunity to stand out as a beacon of light because you have clarity on what you're actually up to, what you're actually put on earth to do, and why you do what you do. And so there's a few different ways that you can consider your work that all of us probably experience at some point in our life. And the first way we usually consider our work is work as futility if you're taking notes that's the first point work as futility that's what it can seem like sometimes can't it a gallup research group did a uh, poll in 2023 and they found out a few things about the current work environment the current work attitude they found out that employees in the united states continue to feel more detached from their employers with less clear expectations, lower levels of satisfaction with their organization, and less connection to its mission and purpose than they did years ago. Now, they're all also less likely to feel that someone at work cares about them as a person. And so they realized after, all the, after they synthesized all the data that only 33% of people right now are actually engaged in their work. So the overall mindset right now is just do enough. Just get by. Just survive for the next day. Just survive till we get to the weekend. This is called the quiet quit. Uh, Who here has had a bad customer service experience? Yeah? The quiet quit, right? You know the person on the other line is just over it. You've ever experienced that? Look, they don't hate you. They just hate their job. They're thinking to themselves, I got more in me than this. And so they're quietly quitting. So when you're tempted as a Christian towards the quiet quit, what are your options? What are you going to do? Here's your two options you can do as a Christian. You can either possess content diligence or possess godly aspiration. When you're tempted towards quiet quit, you can possess content diligence, which is this. Work hard as for the Lord and not for men and accept the limitations of your life and in humble, trusting obedience, don't push against your limits. Be content with where you're, where you're at and work hard as unto the Lord, not as unto men. You might be in a job that you don't love, a career you don't like, but right now life, the limits is putting on you, is just telling you that this is where you're at right now. This is the season of life you're in. And so you need to practice content diligence. Work hard and don't push against your limits. Trust God and obey Him. I read a story about um, a traffic jam that was uh, happening due to construction. A driver rolls up to the flagman, you know, the guy all geared up in his jacket directing traffic. And he rolls down his window and he says, "You must hate this job, right? It's a hot day. You're standing out here all day. It's boring. You must hate your job, right?" And the flagman's response was beautiful. He says this, "I love this job. I love it. You know why? Cuz it matters. I keep people safe. I care about these guys behind me. I keep them safe." I also keep you safe and everyone else and all those cars behind you safe. I get to make a real tangible difference every day. I'm grateful that I was led here. See, if you realize that even manual labor, even uh, a job that you don't love, is somewhere God has placed you so that you can use all your might and all your skill to make the mechanism that is human society work that you're that essential cog in the wheel that produces human flourishing, then you can actually add real meaning to your work. And so if you're stuck in a position and you don't see a way out, if you're stuck in a job and you don't see a way out, then you might need to practice content diligence and add real meaning to your work. Some of you here uh, need to practice godly aspiration. You know, you got more in you than this. And the only thing holding you back is your own fear, your own fear of failure, your own fear of sticking your neck out and doing something different. And so God, the aspiration, challenges you and asks you, are you settling and feeding yourself excuses to let yourself off the hook? 1 Corinthians 7.21 says, "...were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. There's times to practice content diligence." But look what he says after that. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So biblically, it's okay to aspire for more. It's okay to stick your neck out and do something different. You got more in you than this? It's okay to pursue what that might mean. So some of you need to practice godly aspirations so you can unburden your family, stick your neck out there and get a better job and make more money. Some of you were meant for more, and what you're doing by not practicing godly aspiration is you're withholding from yourself that blossoming effect, doing what you were built to do for the needs around you. Man, there's nothing like that, and you're withholding that from yourself by making excuses, by acting in fear. You're withholding yourself from blessing other people. And some of you have more in you, and the only limit holding you down is your own fear of failure. And so work can be futile. It can seem really futile, but you can counteract that with either content diligence or godly aspiration. But work, secondly, can also take the form of idolatry. Work as idolatry. Look, um, you could argue that even though churches right now are dying and people are less religious than ever before, we're more religious than ever before, actually, because... Right now, everybody worships. <laughs> everybody is worshiping. You know you want to know what worship is? It's whatever you give your energy, your time, your resources, your daydreaming to. And you know where people are worshiping. They're not found in church right now. You know where they're found? In their career worshiping, in their workplace worshiping. Careerism, that's the new religion, and your employer is your God. Here's the problem though. Your employer is a terrible God because he can fire you. Your employer is a terrible God because he'll have you competing with the other congregants around you. Your employer is a terrible God because he measures your worth on what you produce. And so let me uh, brand a term in your mind that sums up right now the attitude, our cultural age, and it's this. Secular individualism. Secular means that there's nothing transcendent, only the here and now. Individualism means that the greatest commitment in my life is to myself and my self-actualization. That's the cultural attitude right now, secular individualism. And so because this is the one life we've got and we come first, our work becomes the way that we cash in, that we make ourselves and our life matter. Work, you know, it used to be about helping the community at the expense of yourself, but now it's become about fulfilling the self at the expense of the community. And so people are worshiping now, everywhere people are worshiping than ever before. They're just doing it at their work, in their career, for their boss, because we are secular individualists. And uh, you know what this has produced, this careerism, this individualism, this living for the here and now? It's produced radical, widespread narcissism. I'm going to read you the psychological journal definition of narcissism. You ready for this? It might make some of you uncomfortable. Here we go. It has a pervasive... Narcissism has a pervasive pattern of grandiosity. It needs and requires excessive admiration. It has a grandiose sense of self-importance and exaggerates achievements and talents. Narcissism expects to be recognized as superior without commensurate achievements. It is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success and has a sense of entitlement. It lacks empathy and takes advantage of others to scheme his or her own ends. I remember when I was 22 years old, I was coming out of college and I needed to buy an engagement ring. I also wanted a job in ministry. And so I was looking for a job And I had one rule, one rule, not youth ministry. Whatever it is, not middle school ministry, please, Lord, no. You know, I had some serious entitlement. I had some serious grandiosity. I wish someone would have sat me down and said, look, you are so selfish. You're not here for yourself. You're here for others. Go serve. It's not about you what's happened there? What happened there? Called ministry, wanting to do ministry yet refusing to live in love. What happened is secular individualism entered into my imagination just by it being baked into the world around me and absorbing that as a new normal. And so all of us here are tempted to treat our work as an idol, as a place of worship, where we're going to derive a sense of meaning and establish ourselves in matter. And so I just want to sober you a bit. I just want to, I just want to um, you know, uh, shock your system a little bit, okay? If you died today, likely your greatest regret would be all the energy you spent anxious about your work and all the time you wasted working when you should have been with your kids, when you should have been with your wife, when you should have been with your friends and your church family and your family. That'll be your biggest regret. Not what you've achieved, not how much you've established yourself, that all, it's chaff in the wind. And so, man, work as idol, terrible God, terrible God. So what's our alternatives? What's our other options? Well, the alternative is this, work as worship. Work as worship to God. So thinking about worship, okay, worship is not just singing on Sunday morning. We certainly, that's a a small part of it, but worship is all of life, all for Jesus as a response to his grace. I want to say that again because this is really important. Worship is all of life, all for Jesus as a response to his grace. If you get this wrong, if you don't make that connection, then you will actually end up using your work as a way to win God's grace and win his favor and win his love. And then later on down the road, when it doesn't work out, when you don't get what you wanted deep down in your heart, you'll resent God and you will hold God in contempt because he did not hold up his end of the bargain. You have to get this, that our work is worship to God because it's a response to what he's already done for us. So if you understand that you're loved and you're forgiven and you're favored already in Christ, then you work as a response to the goodness of God. And then work, it elevates, it transforms into worship. That even includes the job you hate. That even includes the job you don't love. Martin Luther King Jr., he was going into an impoverished community and speaking to a a black public school. He told the kids there to find a job, work hard, and lift yourself out of poverty, And one of the students interrupted him and contested him. And here's how he replied. Here's what he replied saying. If it falls, you're a lot to be a street sweeper. Sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Leotine Price sings before the Metropolitan Opera. Sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven and earth We'll have to pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper who swept his job well. Regardless of what you're doing, what the outcome may be, work can be transformed into worship if you have the right theology of work operating behind it, if work is worship, if it's a response to our loving God. And so because your work can be transformed into worship, then guess what? All work becomes meaningful. So 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says, Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your hands as we instructed you. Now, here's what's interesting. In the Greco-Roman Empire, to work with your hands, that was demeaning work meant for slaves or the poor. And so how can Paul, the apostle, say, work with your hands? Do this godly thing and work with your hands, giving meaning and value to it. How could he do that? It's because he writes this in Colossians 3. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So here's what the Christian faith does. It elevates everyday work to meaningful work because all work can be worship. Everything we do, it's a loving response of gratitude to God, right? We do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. All that we do is an offering back to God, a fragrant offering back to him, saying to God, this is for you. This is how much I think of you. This is how grateful I am to you. This is my my service, my song, my gift to you, God, because this is how much you mean to me. Got to have a good theology of work so that all work is meaningful and all work is worship. And if it's true, think about this with me. If it's true that work can be transformed into worship, then it can actually be a spiritually enriching experience. So think about this. God, it says in Genesis, he spoke the earth into existence, but then he got into the dirt to make man with his hands. Psalms says that God weaved and shaped the heavens. God worked with his own hands. God got in the dirt. And he did this to bring to reality what was in his loving imagination. And so, listen, when we get on our hands and knees and play with our kids, or push papers all day, or type on keyboards, or play an instrument, or construct with our bare hands, or write a poem and solve a problem, all to bring to reality what's in our imagination, we are at that moment getting in touch with the very creativity of God. Our work, it can be a portal to deeper intimacy with God because when we work with an awareness of God, it can reveal him in new and profound ways. So this is why 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And the overly simplistic understanding of the glory of God is just to say, to make him famous. That's true. That's in there. But weight is most literally translated as substance. Sorry, glory is most literally translated as substance or weight. It refers to God's just the fullness of who he is. If work can be worship. If we can work with an awareness of God, it means that we can bring the very weight and glory of God back into everyday life. All of life, all for Jesus, because of all that he's done for me already. So this is why Romans 12 says, in view of God's mercy, what then? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And amazing, we can't repay the debt that we owe God. We can't give God something he doesn't already have, but he accepts our work when it's worship as a pleasing sacrifice to him. It's like my kids, not Nora yet, Harper, she'll draw pictures, she'll, she'll say, look at this, look at this. If I were to go and bring that to you know the downtown Annapolis and try to sell it in one of the art shops, I'd be laughed out the door, but it's invaluable to me. Why is that? Because she's my daughter, and she did that for me. And so it's priceless. And that's how God views our work when it's worship, as an invaluable offering to him, and it pleases him. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now think about this. This is Paul talking, the former mercenary, the former abuser and persecutor of the church. That's some serious baggage, okay? By the grace of God, I am what I am. It is what it is. Where I'm at now at this point in my life with all my stuff in my rearview mirror, it's who I am, it's a part of my story. But look what he says God's grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, he did what? I worked harder than all of the other apostles. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. So Paul is saying, I'm bringing everything I got to the table. Good and bad, education, non-education, family of origin, cultural upbringing, things I've learned over time. I'm bringing everything I've got to the table and working harder than anybody because of the grace of God. As a loving response to what he's already done for me. And Paul was a what? A tent maker. Not That's not a... That's not prestigious at all. That's um, menial work that he gives meaning to because of God's grace. So instead of futility, and instead of idolatry, work can be worship. And lastly, work can be a service. A service. We need to understand that our work is a service to other people, and this gives meaning to our work. So here's our options in work. We can exploit people or we can bless people. We can come first, or others can come first. We can advance ourselves, or we can advance others. It's usually not both. It certainly is never both. The former, exploiting, coming first, advancing ourselves, that's always in our best interest. The latter, blessing people, putting others first, advancing first, that comes at great cost to ourselves. You have to die to yourself to do that. And so the goal of business, marketing, ministry, leadership, anything today, is this, win-win. How can I win and how can you win? How can I get my bottom line up? How can I flush my pockets with cash? How can I advance my career and give you a good benefit, give you a good product? Win-win. The problem with that is that's not biblical. The problem with that is that's not the way of Jesus at all whatsoever, Uh, It doesn't produce lasting change in society. It doesn't actually create deep and profound transformation. So if we as Christians uh, who understand the picture of the Garden of Eden to know God so richly that we overflow into the world with his grace and transform the surrounding area, if we want to uplift communities, if we want to create generational change, if we want to bring noticeable healing, felt healing in the world, we need a different mindset than win-win. That won't work. That's a flash in the pan. So, here's what's biblical. I sacrifice, we win. That's the way of Jesus. Not win-win. I sacrifice, we win. Jesus says this in John chapter 12, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, that's Jesus, and that's now you and me. Unless the grain of wheat falls in the earth and dies, it remains alone. Meaning, Nothing is going to change unless you die to yourself. But if it dies, it does what? It bears much fruit. It creates change. It shows signs of generative life. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So you see, the way of Jesus is not at all-win-win. It's I sacrifice so others win. I sacrifice so that we as a world and as a community of people win. So you might ask, what about the bottom line? What about my career? What about my advancing? What about my money? And then the next verse says this, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. So if you're a follower of Jesus, those those questions aren't primary. Those questions aren't pressing because to follow Jesus means that we serve others, that we come second. And then he says this though, this is the consolation, a great consolation. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, my father will honor him. So Jesus, he's not concerned about the benefit, the return on investment. He's not concerned about the bottom line. He's concerned about doing whatever he can to die to himself so that others are transformed, so that others are blessed, so that uh, his life, his little seed that falls on the ground, creates massive impact. And the reason he can do this is because he knows that his father will honor him. The honor that we're going to get, it's not going to be found in this life. This world is not our home. And the more we get that and understand that, that there is real eternity, life everlasting that awaits us, we can let go of so much selfish stuff now and put ourselves second and live with an eye towards eternity. That's where our reward and compensation will come. That's when we will win. And so listen, this this mantra of I sacrifice so we all win this is literally how the church, the tiny little church of Jesus that's meeting in people's houses, this is how the church toppled the Roman Empire. This is how the church took the ground and prevailed against the gates of hell. The church said this to themselves, I sacrifice, so we all win. I die literally as a martyr, so we all win. I care for those with the black plague when no one else will, so we all win. I bury their bodies and give them a dignified funeral when no one else will, so we all win. I feed the poor, so we all win. I adopt orphans when no one else will, so we all win. I give radically, so we all win because we're motivated by the future resurrection. We're motivated by our future honor. This is not our home. Our honor won't be had here. So remember our theological vision for work? We move outward into the world for the good of the world. Each of us who call upon the name of the Lord, who are followers of Jesus, are called to leverage our work, whatever that might be, for the cause of making disciples of Jesus and blessing the world around us. And so you have to understand this. You're not a pastor and you're not in ministry, but there is actually a sacredness to your career because you're called to something. You're called to to a holy ambition. You're called to something bigger than yourself. So your work, it's not a career. Your work is a calling. This is why the Reformers redefined work as vocation. Have you ever heard of that word, vocation? It means a calling to serve. See, during the Reformation, what happened was the Catholic Church is where all of the sacred stuff happened, where all the spiritual happened, where all the, uh, the godly work was done. And then outside the church was just the world, the secular. And when the Reformation happened and the world w- gives, was given access to the word, the word was given access, more great access to the church, that divide between secular and, sep- uh, uh, and sacred was erased. And now everything became sacred. So no longer were the priests in the church those who did sacred work. No longer were they the only ones who had a vocation. Every Christian, every follower of Jesus was called to serve in in their career, was called to serve in their work. Their work was transformed into a vocation. So Christians, no matter the job, understand their work, not as a career, but as a calling, as a service, as a vocation. This is why Luther said, the great reformer, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. Think about Daniel, the Old Testament prophet Daniel. You know, he was incredibly gifted, right? He rose through the ranks like overnight. He was a visionary, literally. He had visions and interpreted them. And then he used that unique gifting to benefit and bless Babylon and then Persia. And remember the story, he was caught praying he didn't hide his faith. He was caught praying, and so he was sent to the lion's den. And it's really interesting. Darius, the king of Persia, wicked, cruel, godless Darius. It says in the story, he was up all night. He couldn't sleep. He was anxious because Daniel was in the lion's den, and he was worried about him. Now, why do you think wicked, cruel Darius was so bent out of shape about Daniel being in the lion's den? Would, would, could it be because Dan, Daniel was a great asset to him? Because Daniel, literally through his work, prosper this entire kingdom or or do you think it's because he knew that Daniel loved him and he loved Daniel because Daniel served him and sacrificed for him it's probably both that Daniel was exceptional at what he did and what set him apart was that he did it for Darius he did it for others not for self see if you strive to be excellent making your work meaningful making your work worship you will melt hearts and you will overturn kingdoms. Uh, So the Bengals sadly didn't make the playoffs this year, uh, so I decided to root for the 49ers because of Brock Purdy. My boy Brock, what a stud. So he was asked by reporters all Super Bowl week, hey, uh, what drives you? What drives you? What motivates you? What's it like to be the quarterback of a Super Bowl caliber team? What's it like to be the leader of this team? He just said, "I'm, I'm here to just love on the guys around me. I'm just here to play for them. I'm here just to play for the organization who drafted me, took a chance on me. I'm here to play for the fans and play for the city. All on a seventh round rookie contract. And he shares an apartment with a teammate, a two bed, one bedroom apartment with a teammate. Yet he's the Super Bowl quarterback of a championship caliber team. How is this guy so approachable? How is this guy so disarming? How is this guy so meek? He's just built different. Why? Because he's a Christian. He's a Christian who understands that playing football, it's not about his legacy, it's not about his name, it's not about his fame, it's not about making tons of money, it's a vocation he serves in for the good of others and for the glory of God. I sacrifice, we win. Midshipman, take note, this is your future. I sacrifice, so we all win. Husbands, take note, I sacrifice so my family wins. Moms, (laughs) tired moms, take note, I sacrifice so we all win. Teachers, social workers, entrepreneurs, engineers, ministers, (laughs) everyone, take note, I sacrifice so we all win because my work is a service to others, not to myself. As I was prepping uh, for this sermon, I came across Praxis Labs. It's this Christian nonprofit, and here's their slogan. Listen to this. Creative restoration through sacrifice. Creative restoration through sacrifice. That's what they're up to. That's what they're all about. And so one of the things they do is they give unrestricted grants to Christian entrepreneurs who want to start businesses that reshape and uplift their community. I sacrifice, so we all win. So if every Christian considers their work as a calling to serve and aims at creative restoration through sacrifice, here's what's gonna happen. Hearts will be melted, skepticism will be disarmed, and the gospel that you believe and are ready to speak will be attractive before you ever even utter a word because your life is already legitimizing it. Your life is already adorning it well. Leslie Newbigin, he was alive during C.S. Lewis's era. He was a missionary in uh, India, comes back and sees America in the way it is. And uh, he says this, that the church needs to live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. Do you work that way in your job around others? Living and working in a way that provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer and you're ready to give it? So, listen, when I read the Bible, I see what's in our control and I see what's in God's control. Outcomes that we can't guarantee, but obedience that we can perform. What's in our control and what's in God's control? Jesus calls this abiding and bearing fruit. You are in control of abiding, He's in control of bearing fruit. And so when I read how the church obeyed Jesus and the fruit that resulted from it, what I see in the book of Acts in the early church is nothing less than total cultural and societal renewal. That was the fruit that the spirit of Jesus caused to bear before their eyes through their radical obedience. I see the early church catching the vision of the Garden of Eden, moving out into the world in renewal for the sake of renewal. And I believe if every Christian moves into the world influencing culture through redemptive participation, we will see a move of God like we see in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 19, Paul's living in Ephesus, dark, uh, unbelieving city. He's living there for two years, and he's sharing the gospel. He's reasoning with people, and he's working every day, and he's performing these outstanding extravagant miracles. His life is attesting to the gospel. And after two years, here's what happens. All of the city of Ephesus comes and brings their magic books to the city center and burns them all. Do you know what that is? That is Christians living for renewal in the city, which brings about total economic and spiritual reversal. This is what can happen when we obey Jesus and he takes care of the rest. Actual, felt, noticeable renewal that takes place all around us. Now, this is not idealistic. This is real. This is what our God is capable of if we will just work unto him and obey him. Christians who are willing to preach the gospel alongside powerful work can bend culture back towards God. When I first got into ministry, I loved it. It was was what I was called to. It was what I was built to do. And when I would meet people who were on fire for Jesus, I would say, oh, you should go into ministry. You should start raising some money. You should enter into ministry. It's the best. You're going to love it. What a massive mistake I was making. If they're called to ministry, so be it. But what we need is Christians. Who get this vision for life and work in every sector, in every space, inhabiting every nook and cranny of culture and society, bringing about renewal through redemptive participation, bringing about renewal through sacrifice. I sacrifice so we all win. Control we can, and God will do the rest. Look, the world is ambitious. The world is driven by ego. We are at a massive disadvantage in the workplace if we are going to play by God's rules. Your one X factor, my one X factor is vocation. Viewing our work as a service to other people. The world's not thinking like that. They're not not operating like that. Dying to self so others might win at whatever cost it may mean to me. That's what sets you apart. That's what's going to make you indispensable. So if you're a Christian the job you take and the work that you do with the career you build, it should not primarily be concerned about money and self-promotion. It should be concerned about making disciples of Jesus and creative restoration through sacrifice, healing the world, blessing others through redemptive participation, bending the culture back towards God and creating a lasting generational change around us. That's what we should be up to. This is God's vision for our work. So I want to ask a few questions to end. This is for you. This is for you to think about and challenge yourself with. First, are you here believing the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? Because look, Before you're to go save the world, you need to be saved from sin. Before you go and create renewal, you need to be transformed. Before you're ever used by God, you need to be reconciled to God. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, the the first and foremost thing that you need to hear right now is repent and believe in the gospel. Turn from your sin, turn from your self-trust, and turn from this way of thinking that it's all about you and give your life to Jesus and be saved. God is more interested in your reconciliation than your work. Be reconciled to God. Now, if you're a Christian, though, do you believe the gospel? In our Citizen Church Institute, we've been reading a book, and it has two parts to it, gospel on the ground, which is, you know, personal reconciliation with God. We got that pretty good. We're pretty good at that. But there's also gospel in the air, a bigger picture, a cosmic gospel. Uh, Colossians 1 says Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. Ephesians 1 says the plan for the fullness of time is to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth, ushering in heaven to earth through Jesus. And so uh, if you believe the gospel, it's not just about personal reconciliation. It's also about invading heaven into earth through what you do, serving as that tether between heaven to earth bringing shalom as the old testament would call it back into the world cornelius plantiga is a philosopher and theologian he offers us this vision in the bible shalom means universal universal flourishing wholeness and delight a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be, bringing order to disorder. If you believe believe the gospel, then we are partnering with God and making disciples and reconciling people through the good news, but also joining him in his great redemptive work, bringing about heaven on earth. Second thing, this isn't a question, this is a, a command stop complaining about your work. Stop complaining about your job. Either get a new job or adopt a new vision for your work. Work out a theology for your work. You know, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life, a lot of mistakes in my life, there's one thing I've never done, and it's complain about my job, because I love what I get to do. This is, this is it. This is what I was built to do. It makes me come alive. I hope you find that for you. I hope you find what makes you come alive or i hope you develop a theological vision for your work so what you're already doing has more meaning to it your work matters it's worshipful it has great potential so don't complain about it third question you ready have you worked out a theology for your work do you have a theology of education if you're a teacher Do you have a theology of technology? Do you have a theology of marketing? Do you have a theology of parenting? Do you have a theology of art? Do you have a theology of music? Do you have a theology of leadership? You need to, you need to. You're gonna spend 100,000 hours doing these things. You need to figure out why you're doing it. And so I'm just gonna rattle off a ton of questions right now. You ready for this? Here's what you need to think about. What drew you to your work? What did God have in mind for your kind of work? How How does it fit into God's larger story? What do you love about your work? What do you hate about it? Can you change it? What scriptures shape a theology of your work? What are the ethical tensions of your work? What are the best practices for people of faith in your industry? What can you do to release beauty through your work? What can you do to resist brokenness in your work? What does excellence look like as a Christian? What dreams do you have? Are they in line with God's word? You need to ask yourself these kinds of questions and examine your own motivations and examine your aspirations. If you don't have a built-out theology, your work will suffer, and therefore the world will, su- will suffer because you are meant to be blessing to the world. Uh, third question, fourth question: Have you worked out your ethics in advance? Do you have an ethical framework for your job? What's your limits? Will you cheat? Will you lie? Will you gossip? How will you treat others? How will you respond when you're the object of office chatter? Will you abuse resources? Will you turn a blind eye to anything? Will you take part in any form of exploitation? Will you chase money? What will you quit over? What are you willing to be fired over? Will you miss church to work? Will you remove yourself from community to work? Look, we're a young congregation, if you couldn't tell. Uh, And I'm telling you now, You, young congregation, need to make up your mind now about what your ethics are. What you're willing to compromise and not compromise on now before the moment of pressure comes because if you don't have this worked out, wherever the power goes, wherever the money goes and the prestige goes, you will follow because you haven't settled your mind on what you ought to do. So imagine if you approach your boss and said this, look, here's who I am. Here's what I'm passionate about. Here's what I'm all about. Here's my family, my friends, my priorities. Here's my boundaries. Here's what I will do. Here's what I won't do. These all come first. But I'll tell you this at the same time, boss. I will work so hard, so excellently within these limitations and restraints I put on myself that I will be your best employee. What if you did that? What if you wore on your sleeve what your vision for life is and stood out among all others because of it? Next question. Are you prepared to be patient and play the long game? Man, we love instant gratification. It's been baked into our being through our culture. We expect instant success overnight. And sometimes we look at other people's successes, how they're doing in their careers, the, the advancement they're making, the money they're making, and we wish we could have what they had. Not realizing that we're in a totally different season of life than they are. They're getting fruit in their own season of life. We're getting our own particular fruit in our season of life. So, are you willing to play the long game? If God's calling you to something, to service to other people, if you have dreams that are in line with God's word, are you willing to play the long game and wait until the right time for God to bring it about? Because here's what's going to happen if you try to rush it. This is really important. This is what I've learned. You may not be ready for success. You may not be ready for for the money (laughs) that, that, that comes down the line. You may not be ready for any of the big stuff you're hoping for because your character has not been formed yet. You need a character that can get underneath the moment of success. You need character that can be responsible with more money. You need character that can remain godly while yet still achieving and not let it go to your head. And so what you need to do is endure a long period of humiliation and character formation and working these things out with the Lord over a long period of time so you're ready for that moment. Otherwise, you'll crumble underneath it or get consumed by it. And so are you prepared to be patient and play the long game? Last question, Citizens Church, what are we doing here? What are we up to here? What's the point of this? Gathering, me preaching, us as a community. What are we doing here? And you might say, we're here for the glory of God. Well, duh, but like, what do you mean by that? What do we mean by that? What am, what am I doing here, preaching? And you might say, you're here to teach us the truth. Yeah, but to what end? What are we up to here? Look, when I read the Bible, the church, when it's biblically faithful and spirit empowered, it changes the surrounding world. It does. If we abide in Jesus, we bear fruit, do we not? Isn't that what he's promised? And so if churches abide in Jesus, shouldn't there be fruit then? Fruit external to these walls. Renewal that's happening around us because of our sacrificial, redemptive, creative participation in the world. (laughs) What are we up to here? What am I doing now? Look guys, there's more at stake when I preach than just giving out information. That's not what I'm here to do. Let's be honest. You can find good sermons on a podcast. You can find good sermons online. You don't need more information. You don't need good sermons. Okay, that's, that's a very low aim. We need more than that. What are we doing here? What's the point of this right now? The point of this is to have your heart reoriented and formed so you can be sent out into the world on mission with these people, with our vision for life together, with Our aim of what we're up to in the world, with our goal of what we're trying to see happen around us. That's what we're up to here. The Inklings, they were a group of authors who would meet in a pub C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, Charles Williams among them. And one author writing about the Inklings says this The Inklings were a circle of instigators meeting to urge one another in the task of redirecting the whole current of contemporary art and life. Eventually, they fashioned a new narrative of hope, released powers of imagination to re-enchant the world through Christian faith. C.S. Lewis, Tolkien changed the world, not by becoming preachers, not by becoming missionaries, but by being good artists. They were instigators. They knew what they were up to, to go and renew the world around them. So God, he's created this world. And now he's handing it off to you and to me. So we participate now through creative restoration, through sacrifice, to make disciples of Jesus and then heal the world around us and bend the world back to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your name be exalted. Let your name, God, stand out amongst all other names through what you're doing here, through how you're transforming us here, through our obedience to you. Father, we pray on earth as it is in heaven, use us, this body of believers, to move out into the world and do what only you can do, God. Bring transformation and renewal, making disciples, and healing our community. And so, Lord, forgive us for when we've been slow to obey. Forgive us, Lord, for when we have made excuses. God, help us to understand that you've put us in all of our different sectors and places to sacrifice so that others win. For the good of the world and the glory of God. Help us to do this, Lord, in your name, amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.